I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broke? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode four of Jack. It is Sunday, December 25th. Merry Christmas to those who celebrate. Andrew, I'm wearing my Eastern State Penitentiary hoodie today. <laughs> oh, nice touch. <laughs> Happy holidays to all. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. Uh, we have a big show today, including new extensive cooperation between the Gen 6 committee and the special counsel and a potential for expansion of assistance with the special counsel investigation into obstruction of justice. We'll also discuss what some of the January 6th committee materials say about one of the main parts of the special counsel investigation, which is the fraudulent elector scheme. Yes, and that is always part one of our episode. That might flip up as, as the investigation goes on and as we see like where the focus ends up eventually. But also today, Andrew, we have a special guest joining us who has one of the most extensive and impressive resumes I've seen. Uh, he was U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Virginia and the Southern District of Texas. He was also a senior FBI official under two directors, both Robert Mueller and Jim Comey. He's also got experience at the Department of Justice as a counselor for the Attorney General John Ashcroft at the time and the chief of staff to the Deputy Attorney General, who was Jim Comey at the time. Now he's an MSNBC contributor. It's Chuck Rosenberg. So I'm very excited to speak with him. So uh, before before he joins us, what are we going to start with today, Andrew? Well, uh, let's talk about the cooperation between the 1-6 committee and the special counsel. So as we saw this week, Punchbowl News was first to report, and I will quote, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection has begun extensively cooperating with the Justice Department's special counsel charged with overseeing investigations into former President Donald Trump. Jack Smith, who Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed as special counsel last month, sent the select committee a letter on December 5, requesting all of the panel's materials from the 18-month probe. Punchbowl News has reviewed Smith's letter. So, wow, lucky for them. Really nice, um, really nice scoop there. And it allows us to focus our attention once again on the uh, letters from Smith. Yeah, because we were talking about that a little bit in the lead up, especially in the last episode with Andrew Weissman, who who was reporting that, you know, maybe this is a good time for, you know, learning from what happened in the Mueller investigation and going forward into the next into this special counsel investigation that that perhaps um, Jack Smith could be somewhere in between like a like Mueller, who really never said anything and Comey, who kind of said everything. Uh, and so this sort of seems like this. We had, we had the letter on Thanksgiving. Now we've got this December 5th letter, uh, you know, where he's basically reaching out to the Justice Department again and saying, hey, we need we need all of your stuff uh, and we need it now. Uh, although my understanding was and correct me if I'm wrong, some sometime in late summer, maybe September, the Department of Justice had already sort of started handing over information and transcripts and evidence that they had with regard to the fraudulent elector scheme. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's it's not hard to kind of imagine that as Jack Smith gets his hands around everything that's going on with this team, 
um, just like we talked about last week, those kind of broad-based subpoenas reaching for, um, you know, very basic uh, communications between um, select people and anyone connected with the Trump campaign or or Donald Trump himself. It seems that that Smith is really kind of reorienting things, making sure he's got all of his ducks in a row, making sure he's kind of laid the foundation for the things that he needs, right? I'm quite confident there were probably communications between DOJ and the committee over the last several months. But now that Jack Smith is on board and obviously fully in charge, it doesn't surprise me that he wants to kind of you know, clean the slate and make sure in writing they understand exactly what his position is with uh, retrieving the information they feel they need to keep this investigation moving forward. And like we saw in the Thanksgiving letter, what we're seeing is is that Jack Smith is not afraid to put his pen to paper, put his name on the letter, make it clear exactly what he wants and why he thinks he's entitled to it, uh, which is a very proactive lead from the front style. I think that's the right way to go. Uh, we'll see how it works for him. But uh, from my perspective, he seems to be off to a good start. Yeah, and and I also kind of want to touch on a little bit my concerns over the past eight eight months or so with the seeming public reticence of the of the committee to share their work product with the Department of Justice. Although I also, on the other hand, understand how the Department of Justice, uh, you know, probably doesn't wants to they want to keep that giant wall of separation. Uh, to avoid politicization. And, at, you know, at first, before Jack Smith was even appointed, I was like, maybe don't even make criminal referrals because I think, they, you know, bad bad actors could take that and run with it as some sort of evidence that, you know, the Department of Justice is working hand-in-hand with House Democrats. Uh, but, you know, with this extra insulary sort of buffer zone of having a special counsel that's totally independent, I was like, all right, we'll make the criminal referrals because it's your duty to make those criminal referrals. Um, so what are your what are your thoughts on on that? I mean, where where do you stand on that sort of because we know that we know that the Department of Justice can't really move forward with prosecutions until they get all the testimony that happened in Congress because they don't want to have what happened to Durham in the Sussman case happen where Jim Baker had sort of conflicting testimony from Congress to the inspector general to a grand jury, as we talked about before. Yeah, you know they they were op- the committee. Look, was uh, had a great deal of independence uh, and a, and a great deal of momentum in the work that they did. It didn't surprise me that they wanted to maintain that independence throughout the kind of course of their investigation. I think during that time, there's a lot that DOJ could do. It seems now we're finding out more and more each day that they were actually engaged, maybe even more actively earlier on than any of us suspected. A lot of folks criticized what they perceived uh, to be a lack of, you know, forward motion on these investigative issues by DOJ. Now we know that they are deeply engaged. At some point, these two paths had to cross. You know, there was a lot DOJ could do, but now they're at the point where they really need to see and to understand the full scope, the full details of who the committee spoke to and what those folks told them what kind of records the committee was able to put their hands on, which ones they didn't ask for, which ones maybe they asked for but didn't get. Um, so there is a lot of coordination that needs to happen now. Committee's done, and so it's appropriate for them to kind of open up the floodgates and really uh, hand over a lot of that work. 
So with that uh, kind of tee up on all these issues, we have a uh, an incredibly special guest to talk to today about this stuff. Seems like a good time to welcome that gentleman, former U.S. attorney and current MSNBC contributor, Chuck Rosenberg. Chuck, welcome uh, to the show and thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Andy. Thanks for having me. And full disclosure, Chuck and I worked together uh, in the FBI for a good period of time, and uh, we remain good friends to this day. So it's uh, it's a rare treat to have you on here with us today. Yeah, I'm I'm actually especially honored to to meet you, uh, Mr. Rosenberg, and and I I'm very glad you're joining us to help explain a few things because I've I've been watching your work for a very long time, and you're always so good at succinctly uh, explaining things. A friend of mine once said, if I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. And your your word economy uh, is is super on point. Uh, and, you know, I've had, a, personally, I've had a lot of concerns about how the committee's work could negatively impact the work of criminal prosecutors. Uh, I'm old enough to remember the Iran-Contra hearings and some of the immunization problems they ran into. And I was also concerned how the delay in standing up the committee in the first place could eventually delay the work of the Department of Justice and the reticence of the committee to hand over their work product to DOJ. Not because I thought DOJ couldn't or wasn't doing the work, but as I had said, you know, mentioned previously, DOJ needs those transcripts to look for those inconsistencies that could potentially derail prosecutions and witnesses. Now, my uh, my go-to example for that, as I said, is, is Jim Baker and the Durham prosecution of Sussman. But now the committee is releasing their underlying evidence to the public. And while I'm all for transparency and very curious about it, I've seen you uh, repeatedly warning of potential negative impacts that could have for prosecutors. Can you explain uh, how releasing certain evidence could imperil the Department of Justice prosecutions and maybe give us a hypothetical that would illustrate why it could potentially be a a bad idea? Uh, Sure, Allison. I'm happy to try. And thanks for having me. So think of it this way. From the standpoint of Congress, it makes a lot of sense to show their work, right? Like on a math test, when you're in middle school, you get some credit for showing your work. And Congress has done that in hearings and report. And now by dumping into the public domain, all of the transcripts. Um, from From the perspective of the Department of Justice, I've said, and I continue to believe it's a terrible idea because as Andy well knows, Uh, We don't do our investigations in public. So the hypothetical, what can go wrong? So think of it this way. Allison, you're the witness. On day one, uh, you told investigators the light was green. On day two, you told investigators the light was red. And on day three, you told investigators you didn't see a light. At least you don't recall seeing one. First of all, that happens. Witnesses change their stories, they remember things, they forget things, and there are always discrepancies, often not nefarious. But here, every other witness will know, Allison, what it is you said, and could theoretically align their testimony to yours. That's problem number one. Ill-intentioned witnesses will see everyone else's deposition testimony and could align their, um, you know, what they tell investigators to what other people told investigators. Uh, problem number two, witnesses, and Andy also knows this from his work at the FBI, often come forward with some degree of trepidation. Um, nobody really wants to be a witness. When you meet somebody who really wants to be a witness, um, you get a little concerned about their motives. Most people don't want to do this. And we know witnesses can be harassed. They can be intimidated. In worst case scenarios, it can be, well, even worse. 
And so you want to protect witnesses from retaliation or from intimidation and putting everyone's name out there with everything they said about everyone else, I think could open you know that path for something bad to happen. I hope it doesn't. By the way, Allison, the mere fact that nothing bad happens, let's say nobody aligns their testimony with anyone else or no witness is intimidated or harassed, doesn't mean it was a good idea to dump this stuff into the public sphere. It just means you got lucky. That is so true. Um, I, I remember one of the hardest things to teach new FBI agents was the kind of uh, subtle art of going into an interview room with a witness or a uh, target of an investigation and to question them and interview them without revealing what you actually know, because you essentially pollute the witness's recollection with your own information. And then you've just basically ruined it. You, you've, you know, you're, what they learn from you is not testimonial. It's what they learn from their experience or observations, what they what they saw, what they heard uh, is what you need in court. So yeah, it's a really good point. I also think, Chuck, that it's um, as much as it's important for DOJ to review those transcripts for inconsistencies and to understand what maybe weaknesses their witnesses have, it's also a great opportunity for the defense to start doing that work long in advance. They're gonna, they would probably get those transcripts anyway in discovery, but uh, they have the opportunity to really um, dig deep, uh, long in advance on where the weak spots might be with any with any given witness. And it all comes back to this point that, like, hey, what we all saw in those ten hearings was were witnesses performing some incredibly well, telling compelling stories with what seemed to be good recollections, but were, they were not subjected to cross-examination. And that is a totally different ballgame. Totally different ballgame. Uh, there was no judge. There were no rules of evidence. Um, hearsay was completely, um, I wouldn't even say admissible because there was no one to admit or deny the admission of anything. Uh, you know, there are no rules in front of Congress, really. The way you authenticate a document in a hearing room is by waving it in front of a television camera. Um, that's not quite the way you do it in a courtroom. But Andy, you're right. In a real criminal trial, the defendant or defendants would get discovery in the forms of what other witnesses say. So let's say, again, Allison's our witness. We would have to turn over to the defendants everything she said. It's called Jenks material, uh, and it's mandated by rule. Um, that the other side gets to see what the witnesses against them have said. But, but Andy, they wouldn't get the uh, deposition testimony of a thousand witnesses. They would get the deposition testimony of the witnesses we were calling at trial. But to your point, here they have access to everything. And so it does, it's a gold mine for defense attorneys. Not that they're not entitled to the occasional gold mine, but this is not the type of um, information they would get under the federal rules of criminal procedure. I think most, many, the majority of defense attorneys are, you know, uh, honest, law abiding, play by the rules, uh, but there are some who don't. And this is going to enable them to help shade testimony. Uh, to protect their clients at trial. Yeah, no question. Yeah, and and the, there already seems to be uh, even prior to the release of any of these transcripts or the hearings some sort of some coordination uh, among uh, you know Trump lawyers, some the paid by the Save America PAC, 
um, the, the Cassidy Hutchinson uh, testimony, for example, and Passantino, um, you know, and then, of course, a lot of these transcripts that have come out already are mostly the first batch that they put out was like 30 or so people who just basically all pled the fifth. And I have to imagine that they all, as soon as they heard what the committee was asking them, went back and shared with their group in Trump world uh, what the committee knew and what they were looking for and what they were asking for. So there was already and, and there was already some intimidation, as we now know, uh, at least uh, on behalf of one witness or in 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 re- with regard to one witness, Cassidy Hutchinson. Uh, what. What are your thoughts on what they've released so far? I wasn't too concerned about all the stuff where they pled the fifth because, like I said, I'm sure they were already coordinating prior to them being released. But I feel like this Cassidy Hutchinson testimony has a a lot more to it and and could potentially make life hard for some prosecutors, particularly when, you know, investigating obstruction of justice. So there's a bunch of things in your question, Allison. First, uh, I didn't like dumping into the public sphere any of the testimony. And even though I am no fan of uh, former President Trump or his minions, uh, I also don't think it was particularly fair to dump into the public sphere uh, people invoking their Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination, right? The Supreme Court has been clear. Um, That privilege, if you believe a truthful answer to a question would tend to incriminate you, is to protect the innocent as well as the guilty. Now, Most of the time, practically speaking, folks who invoke the fifth are more likely to be guilty than innocent, but not always. And so why is that going into the public domain? For what prurient interest are we doing that? I mean, if you don't learn anything about the substance of the investigation from them, then it's only there so we can demonstrate that they took the fifth. That doesn't seem like a good uh, idea to me. And I don't think it's something the Department of Justice would do. A second question uh, that you asked has to do with something called joint defense agreements. If you and me and Andy are all subjects of an investigation and likely to be charged, uh, we could hire lawyers who know one another, who trust one another, and who are friends with one another. And it's perfectly okay with our consent as clients for them to coordinate in our defense and to share information. That happens all the time, and there's nothing wrong with it. Each attorney, your attorney, Allison, for you, Andy's attorney for him, my attorney for me, has to um, first and foremost you know, protect um, their individual client. That's their ethical uh, obligation. But they can share information. Uh, and so I'm not concerned when attorneys form joint defense agreements or share information as long as they're doing it with the knowledge of their clients in the interest of their clients. But... There's a third question, I think, that uh, embedded in what you asked, which is, well, what about what seems to have happened with Cassidy Hutchinson and her lawyer? So there's two ways to think about it. And frankly, we don't know which of these things happened. Um, Her lawyer could have said to her, look, Cassidy, if if you go in there and they ask you a question and you genuinely don't know the answer to it, tell them you don't know. Tell them you don't remember. It's okay not to remember. There's nothing wrong with not remembering. That's fine if that's what happened. On the other hand, uh, if uh, her attorney said to her, hey, Cassidy, if they ask you about Allison, you've never met her and you've never heard of her, even if that's not true. Um, Don't give up anything on Allison. Protect Allison at all costs. That's a problem because then you would be suborning perjury. So she may have one recollection of what happened. He may have another. 
I wasn't there. I don't know. Um, but I think you have to be careful about jumping to conclusions about what transpired between the two of them. The first thing is fine. If they ask you something and you don't know the answer, it's okay to say, I don't know. Don't guess. Not remembering is not a crime. The second thing, you know, asking someone to lie or to shade the truth, that's a problem. Um, but I don't know how we know which of those two things happened. It's very, um, it's a tough situation. And if, as you read through her transcript, which of course, um, to your point, Chuck, is entirely her recollection, right? Of these things that she, conversations she had with him and experiences she had with him. And she's relating it in uh, what would have been, I guess, a f at least a fourth interview with the committee. So that transcript, it shows kind of both things happening, right? There are some things that her lawyer does over the course of that, her, their representation that might strike people as strange, but really is just very standard, aggressive um, advocacy, representing your client, like working with calling the committee back and trying to discourage them from calling your client in for another interview, trying, you know, trying to downplay to the committee what you think, you know, what your client knows. Oh, she doesn't really know that much. She didn't have great access. These are the sorts of things that lawyers do every day in representing their client, especially clients who have an interest in maybe not wanting to appear for whatever reason. Um, and so that's really on the regular side of the equation. But then there's these other very strange things that happen, again, according to Ms. Hutchinson, between the two of them, like the fact that he won't give her a letter of engagement, the fact that he won't disclose to her where the money is coming from to pay his bill. You know, according to her recollection, things that he says along the lines of it's, you know, where she says she apparently tells the committee at some point that she doesn't recollect something. She walks out into a recess, really has an emotional reaction to that and tells the attorney, I think I lied. I think I lied. I might be in trouble. And his reaction is it's okay. They don't know what you know. So therefore it's okay to say you don't recall. That to me is pretty clearly over the line into encouraging your, your, your client to use I don't recall as an obfuscation for knowledge that you actually have, which is which is kind of beyond the pale. I agree with you on that last thing. If in fact she knew and he encouraged her to say that she didn't know or didn't recall, that's a problem, clearly a problem. You know, I think Cassidy Hutchinson um, is a really good example of a couple of things. Let me give you another, I mean, uh, another thing that I, 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 I'm concerned about with respect to her. I thought she was incredibly articulate and truthful. In other words, when I saw her testimony, her public testimony during the committee hearing, I believed that she was telling the truth. I don't know that, but that's how it came across to me. And like you, Andy, I've seen hundreds, if not thousands of witnesses. Uh, that doesn't mean she was right. So, for instance, when she talked about what happened in the president's limousine, she could have been faithfully relaying to the committee what somebody told her. And that somebody could have either been wrong or lying to her. That's why her testimony before the committee was hearsay and would not have been admissible in federal court. So hearsay is an out-of-court statement, something that you say outside of court that's offered for the truth in court. So the president tried to grab 
the steering wheel, or the president said X, Y, and Z, or the president lost his temper, or the president threw a cheeseburger, or whatever um, she was told that the president did. If she saw it or heard it, she's the percipient witness, and it's admissible. Right. If someone else told her that the president said X, Y, and Z, or grabbed for the steering wheel, you'd have to call that other person as the witness at trial because they would be the percipient witness. And so I found her both entirely credible, very articulate, very bright, um, and perhaps wrong. Yeah. And that's the difference between a hearing and a trial. I totally agree. And as a side note, I also felt even that day when she gave that testimony, I felt like the committee really committed a strategic error and I think did a disservice to her by I agree. drawing that really very um, kind of high profile, you know, that was clearly the line and the element of her testimony that the media was going to latch on to. It's, um, uh, it's a really powerful story, but it's one in which they put her all the way out on a limb, giving that kind of almost double hearsay testimony it wasn't artfully presented, and they left her out there vulnerable to these attacks that she had made it up or she lied or recollection wasn't any good, which is, of course, exactly what happened in the week that followed all sorts of unnamed um, people speaking to the press saying that, you know, contradicting what she said or said there were other people closer to the events who's, who who disputed what she said. So it was kind of an unforced error, I thought, by the committee and one that had the ultimate effect of damaging their witness and damaging potentially a, a an important uh, prosecutorial witness if there is ever a trial based on these events. Well, there are other things where she is a percipient witness. There are things that she directly heard and things that she directly saw. And again, I found her incredibly um, articulate and thoroughly credible in the retelling. Doesn't mean she was right. I, you know, go back to the analogy I used before. If Allison tells me the light was green, and I tell you, Andy, the FBI agent, that Allison said the light was green. You don't actually know what color the light was. Yeah, you just know what I told you based on what Allison told me, and that's a very different thing. So I agree with you; it's an unforced error. Also, and this goes, this harkens back to something we talked about a few minutes ago: the attacks on Cassidy Hutchinson. This is what happens when you put people out there. They get attacked fairly or unfairly. And some number of witnesses, probably seeing what happened to Cassidy Hutchinson, didn't want to come forward. So now that a thousand transcripts are being <laughs> dumped into the public sphere, how does that help the Justice Department do its work? Yeah. yeah. And and of course, when Tony Ornato came back in to testify about that exchange, he said, I do not recall. And so that, that's how you can help the the. <laughs> the other side with releasing what you know um, so that they can prepare to go in and, and say things like that. Uh, Chuck, I have a question about the future because I, and I'm asking this because I have had multiple people concerned with what the 118th Republican Congress could do to perhaps kneecap the Department of Justice prosecutions and investigations, specifically dragging in witnesses like Scott Perry, who we know the DOJ has been looking at since at least May, 
uh, and and immunizing them or or bringing in other witnesses and, and immunizing them so that they can't be prosecuted in the Department of Justice. But that seems to cross some sort of a separation of powers boundary to me. Can you talk a little bit about because it did that didn't happen during the Mueller investigation. You know, they didn't try to sabotage the Mueller investigation by bringing everybody in and immunizing them. I, I just don't think that that's a possibility. But a lot of people are asking about that and are concerned about some of the, I guess, shenanigans is the best way I can put it, uh, of what this Republican Congress might have in store. Can you address that? Yeah, it seems remote that they could kneecap uh, the Department of Justice by immunizing witnesses. Let me explain that, though. If a witness is immunized before Congress and he or she gives full, accurate, and honest testimony pursuant to immunity, then um, generally speaking, you know they are they've gotten a get out of jail card. They're not they, that can't be used against them because immunity essentially substitutes for your Fifth Amendment privilege. Allison, if you were invoking your Fifth Amendment privilege. Uh, in a bank robbery that you committed, and we immunize you, um, and we compel you to testify, we're doing that in return for a promise that we are giving to you not to use your incriminatory testimony against you. So I guess theoretically, Congress could immunize witnesses, get them to tell the truth. It would have to be the truth. You can't be immunized (laughs) for a lie. It, It has to be for the truth. Um, and then tell uh, the Department of Justice, okay, well, there you go, guys. Um, you now have immunized testimony in the public sphere. Uh, and so, you know, you can't use him or anything he said or any leads that are derived from that. That's not entirely true. The Department of Justice could have a clean team. They could filter, they could wall themselves off from the immunized testimony. They could demonstrate to a judge in a court one day that information they obtained about Allison or about uh, some congressman was obtained independently and not pursuant to any immunized testimony uh, that you gave Allison. That gets pretty cumbersome. And without going into sort of uh, great detail, that was a problem in the Oliver North trial, immunized by Congress, prosecuted by the Department of Justice. Uh, and the Department of Justice, as I recall, was not satisfactorily able to demonstrate that the information it used came from a source other than his public immunized testimony. So could they complicate things for the Department of Justice? Perhaps. Could they kneecap the Department of Justice? I don't think so. I think that's a little far-fetched. Mm-hmm. Good to know. Um, well, I don't know that I'm right, by the way, Andy. Oh, it doesn't matter. I'll just take I, – I like your opinion, so I'll just accept it <laughs> yeah, as fact. You're, you're, I enjoy your confidence, <laughs> so I'm going to go with it. I'm going to run with it. So, okay, Chuck, how about big picture um, – as you look at what the special counsel is doing, having uh, responsibility both for the kind of, I'll call it the Mar-a-Lago case, the documents case, and then, of course, the January 6th cases, whatever whatever spins out of uh, all of that inquiry. What do you think in terms of 
timing with respect to the two of those uh the two those two separate efforts and and when when do you think we'll see kind of big moves possibility of charges or a decision on whether or not to charge in those cases i want you to pay attention to how i do not answer your question andy <laughs> this is uh, a master class in how to comment on television let me just say it this way I know folks have been upset that the Department of Justice has not been moving more quickly. Number one, I don't know that that's true. I mean, most uh, of an investigation is done, forgive the analogy, underwater, like a submarine, which only occasionally surfaces, fires a torpedo and goes back down. So they could be doing a lot and they could have been doing it quickly. We're just not seeing it. And so I don't think folks should assume that silence means inaction. Um, second, if I have a choice only between um, going fast or being thorough, uh, I'm going to take being thorough every time because you really only have one shot at this. Um, third, we know they've been investigating this for a long time. I mean, the attorney general has said as much, and that it's a big, complex, cumbersome investigation. You know those things, Andy, from your own experience, take a long time. So I don't know that this strikes me as being particularly slow. I don't know, to, to try and answer your specific question, when we're going to see a charge. But you know, it doesn't strike me that this has been sort of particularly or egregiously slow. I would also say um, that I don't think of these as separate cases. I've heard, I've heard people comment that the Mar-a-Lago case seems really easy and discreet and should be brought now and independently. I don't know if I were the prosecutor that I would bring two separate cases against a former president. Um, I would wait till I had everything and if possible, join them in a single indictment uh, in one place, in one proceeding. I also don't know that the Mar-a-Lago case is as simple as people make it out to be. I, you would also have to show uh, that you know he had a role in moving the documents, knowing they were classified. Now, finding some in his desk um, is pretty helpful. That's pretty good evidence. I, I remember a case I had where we were uh, we had charged someone with structuring, uh, a hard thing to prove that someone knows is unlawful, except that we found the um, statute in his desk drawer. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it helps, but I don't know that it's conclusive. It helps to have a, a, a subject who's studying the law you're going to charge him with as you're trying to prove his uh, knowledge of the law. You know, it's a, it's a really interesting point about holding off and bringing both together because I've heard the same sort of commentary about these two. I also don't think that Mar-a-Lago is nearly as simple as it's been portrayed um, by some folks in the media. I have a... Um, an agent's ingrained, learned uh, understanding and perspective that there is no such thing as a slam dunk, that every case is more complicated and harder to prove and uh, than you think it is at first, that when you think you're rolling into a case just to make the, you know, it's the, the wrap-up case, the one that you did on the side of your big RICO investigation just because it was there and it needed to be done, those are the ones that, uh, you know, turn into the Vietnam that never ends and, uh, you know, leads to acquittals at trial or something. So, um, 
yeah, I think Mar-a-Lago, there's more, there's more than meets the eye at Mar-a-Lago. It would be an interesting tactic for them to take, though, to, to combine all that stuff in one, uh, one effort. Well, Andy, I always thought my job as a federal prosecutor was to think of the hundred things that could go wrong, not the hundred things that could go right. And so, you know, maybe I drove the agents with whom I worked crazy. I'm confident of um, that. I'm confident that you're confident of that. <laughs> yeah, uh, but, but like, I mean, you know, a, a lot of times we hear, well, just get them on one thing and then bring superseding indictments later. But I mean, don't you then start the speedy trial clock and put yourself under the gun when you do something like that? It doesn't seem like a reasonable way to go. I wouldn't uh, recommend that here, um, Allison. So superseding indictments, bringing one charge and then adding others, it makes sense under certain circumstances. Uh, let's say there, you, know, you, Allison, are that violent bank robber we talked about earlier, and we think you're probably good for a dozen bank robberies, but we got you on one. We charge you, we arrest you, we detain you, we get you off the street, uh, and then we have a little bit of time to investigate the other 11 and charge those subsequently. That's fine. Um, and that makes sense because you're a threat to public safety. But here you have um, a documents case at Mar-a-Lago uh, and you have, uh, you know, a, a whole series of different cases related to January 6th, insurrection, um, you know, uh, uh, an obstruction of government processes, um, uh, defrauding of the United States, but no ongoing public, immediate public threat, I would say not in the same way as a bank robber walking into a lobby of a bank with an automatic weapon, right? Uh, it's sort of different. And so the government has, well, I would say the luxury of time to do it at once and do it all right uh, and doesn't need to charge uh, a piece of it and then another piece of it and then yet another piece. That doesn't make sense to me here. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I, I do hear... A lot of people is concerned, well, he when he's out, he's still spreading the lie and spreading the big lie. I mean, it was 20 months after the election. He called up Robin Voss over in Wisconsin and, and tried to get him to overturn the election again. And he's out there still doing it. But uh, Well, he's always going to be out there, Allison. I mean, even if he charged him tomorrow, it's not like he's going to be detained or muzzled. Always been my point. That's always been. If we indicted him six months ago, he'd still be out doing his thing, waiting, awaiting trial out on bail. He, he is every attorney's nightmare client. He's the he's the <laughs> the biggest nightmare client ever. I mean, I can't even imagine that. But hey, that's he finds he finds attorneys when he needs them. So uh, good for him. Yeah, that that three million dollars a pop, right? There you go. There All you right, go. Th thank you so much for joining us today, explaining this to us in a in a way that's easy to understand. Former U.S. Attorney, MSNBC contributor Chuck Rosenberg, we appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Chuck. Oh, thanks for having me, Allison and Andy. Everybody, stick around. We'll be right back to discuss the obstruction of justice considerations pursuant to the release of the January 6th committee findings. Stay with us. Welcome back. Okay, let's switch up a little bit this week and talk about potential obstruction of justice. One of our guests last week, Ryan Goodman, wrote this for Just Security after the January 6th executive summary came out. And I'll quote, 
On Monday, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol released an executive summary of its final report, which focuses primarily on former President Donald Trump's alleged criminal efforts to overturn the 2020 election. The committee, however, also presented new evidence of criminal efforts to interfere with its investigation on the part of some witnesses, their attorneys, and others associated with the former president. It's the kind of evidence that may have far-reaching implications, including bolstering special counsel Jack Smith's January 6th and Mar-a-Lago investigations, end quote. So really uh, great summary uh, from Ryan about what we all heard in the special counts, I'm sorry, in the January 6th committee's presentation earlier this week. It was definitely one of those moments. I, as I was watching it, Allison, I thought like, oh, wow, they're digging in deeper on this issue than they ever have before. Yeah. And and I thought, you know, interestingly, with, you know, just talking with uh, Chuck Rosenberg saying that we don't necessarily think these things aren't connected, Ryan says uh, this evidence could have implications bolstering Jack Smith's inquiry into January 6th and Mar-a-Lago. And of course you and I had talked about in the in I think it was the it was the episode that we uh, discussed the scope of the investigation and how obstruction of justice fits in there. And it's not just obstructing Jack Smith's investigation, but it could be obstructing the January 6th committee's investigation. And that's you know and we this is where we learned I mean, so much has come out with this Cassidy Hutchinson, tr- these two transcripts, uh, and and what the what the committee um, came forward with on Monday, but particularly confirming that it was in fact Stefan Passantino, her first attorney, who tried to, you know, get her to say she didn't recall when she actually did recall, and of course, as you know, as Chuck reminds us, that's her recollection of what happened. But apparently she might have some text messages that can that can be added. I heard Barb McQuaid talk about potential text messages. That would very be very important evidence if you were trying to prove some sort of witness tampering or suborning perjury or obstruction of justice or even a 1001 charge. Um, but, you know, saying I do not recall when you do recall, to me that's telling your – if that happened, that's telling your client to lie – and then also dangling jobs with high compensation and payment just prior to her depositions seems like, yeah, really problematic. And I was I was reading that uh, transcript just yesterday, and just kind of like each page, you know, there's another like oh my gosh moment. Now, to be clear, as we discussed with with Chuck, that transcript is Cassidy Hutchins' recollection of her interactions with her former attorney, Stefan Passantino. Um, he may have a very different recollection of those things. He may recollect things that he said that were, you know, um, advising her not to abuse the, I do not recall, and that that she didn't remember that in her in her testimony. Who knows? So we can't sit here and say with, with perfect clarity, whether uh, any sort of um, kind of, you know, nefarious conduct took place here. But I, I do think it's probably helpful to talk about a couple of the laws very quickly that could form the basis of kind of an obstruction, certainly an obstruction inquiry. So this is probably some of the laws that the special counsel team is focusing on right now. As you mentioned, Allison, you always kind of start with what we call 1001. So it's 18 U.S. Code 1001, and it's basically the false statements statute. And what the false statement uh, statute requires is that you make a false statement 
um, to a representative of the government and the thing that you falsify is a material fact. So not just some kind of doesn't really matter type of fact, but something that's material, you know, to the inquiry that's um, that's being conducted. Honestly, it's hard for me on this, on the very discreet question of the interactions between Hutchins and uh, Passantino, it's hard for me to see how 1001 would would really apply um, unless you brought one or both of them in for an interview about this later and you had some feeling that that they misled um the agents or attorneys in the course of that interview. The next law they might be looking at is 18 U.S. Code 1505, which is obstruction of proceedings before departments, agencies, and committees. This is an interesting one because, you know, technically you could use this against either Hutchinson or uh, Passantino. So the first part of the code requires uh, it says, whoever with intent to avoid, evade, or prevent, or obstruct compliance willfully withholds, sorry, misrepresents, um, basically lies in answers to written interrogatories or oral testimony, which is the subject um, of obviously an official inquiry. So that's the part of the statute you would use if you actually thought for some reason you wanted to hold um, Cassidy Hutchinson accountable for what she indicates might not have been completely forthcoming um, forthcoming testimony. However, the second paragraph of the statute says, whoever corruptly obstructs or endeavors to influence, mm-hmm. obstruct, or impede the due and proper exercise of the power of inquiry under which any investigation is being had by either the House, a committee of the House, or any joint committee of Congress. So obviously I've kind of truncated the statute there to get to what matters, but that's essentially forcing someone else to mislead or withhold information from, in this case, a congressional inquiry. So that's the one that you could see might apply to an attorney who overtly influenced their client to kind of, you know, say they didn't recall when they knew they actually did recall. And finally, there's 18 uh, USC 1512, which is tampering with a witness. This is a long statute in relevant part, most relevant part. There's two little pieces that I think are relevant here. Um, section B1, which is whoever corruptly persuades another person with intent to influence, delay, or prevent the testimony of that person in an official proceeding. Obviously, that could impact a lawyer who kind of uh, nefariously guides their their client into misrepresenting or, or falsely answering questions. Or section B2A, which is causing or inducing any person to withhold testimony from an official proceeding. So there are some significant federal criminal laws here that will could probably form the basis of the special counsel's inquiry. And we haven't even talked about ethics problems. So attorneys dr- drifting into this onto this uh, thin ice and putting their law licenses at risk by violating the attorney's ethical code. Yeah, and I'm I'm assuming this could be investigated by getting a hold of Passantino's emails and devices, setting up a filter team, determining what's attorney-client privileged, and determining what might fall in the crime-fraud exception. For example, like what what happened with Eastman, perhaps. I mean, that's, again, something that makes this just one of those tiny little elements that makes these kinds of investigations so cumbersome and, and take so long is because you have to go through those prosecutorial steps. And we all learned very well the three elements of obstruction of justice, right? The obstructive act, uh, 
uh, the nexus to an official proceeding. And we have most decidedly determined multiple times in court that the one six committee is a official is an official proceeding. <laughs> <laughs> sure is. Uh, sure and is. you remember when Manafort sued like a hundred times to say that the Mueller mm-hmm. investigation wasn't, you know, a- official proceeding and wasn't, you know, legitimate. Well, interestingly enough, you saw that in the in the transcripts of this week, right? Jeff Clark does that. John Eastman does that. They start off their testimony, which in which they never don't actually say anything because <laughs> of claims of privilege, and I don't recall. But they start off by giving these impassioned um, statements of how the committee is illegitimate and they don't have the power to issue a subpoena and all, all, all stuff that's been litigated a hundred times. So it's kind of uh, just kind of ridiculous to listen to. Yeah. And then the, and then the third thing is is intent, which we've talked about a lot. And Ryan Goodman, you know, he says it can be, as you just said, a federal crime for any witness to tell congressional investigators that she does not recall information when she does, in fact, clearly recall. And as you said, it's also a federal crime for counsel uh, to tell someone to commit that act. And he actually comes up with the, the Nixon-Halderman example, right? When Nixon says to Halderman, remember, I can't recall. I can't give any honest and answer honest to that that I can recall. That's it. That's all you say, you know, and that we know how yeah. we, we know how that turned out. But um uh let's talk about how special counsel can use this information because Ryan Goodman reminds us that these individuals, these lawyers might not have any criminal exposure in the scheme to overturn the election itself, but now could have criminal exposure for their actions toward the congressional investigation as part of a, a part of a cover-up, he says. He says, quote, their potential criminal liability could provide leverage for special counsel Smith. And here's the key, not to charge him, but to try to flip individuals to cooperate against Trump in the January 6th investigations. And if they also have insights into Mar-a-Lago, then that investigation as well. And that's one of those things that brings these two things together, you know, like Pat Cipollone and, um, and Pat Philbin, the Pats, they both have information on both of these investigations. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So in the mind of the investigator, criminal exposure equals leverage. Um, You're not going to ever charge every single person that might maybe somehow could have committed a, a potential offense. But you'll use the prospect of that as an as a way to open doors to sitting down and talking to people and getting them to cooperate with the investigation. So that really turns into a very effective thing. Now, let's remember, as we said earlier, very hard to say conclusively with any confidence what the situation was or will be between Cassidy Hutchinson and Stefan Pasatino. It's all based on those conversations they had between the two of them. That can be a very hard thing to reconstruct in a prosecution. But interestingly enough, at the beginning of her uh, of her testimony, uh, the transcript that we received yesterday, you see that she, before she starts talking to the committee, she waives all of her attorney-client privilege with Passantino. So there's no longer a privilege between them that would restrict Passantino from responding to, let's say, a subpoena or something like that. Um, so you can this is a fundamentally different situation. There's also uh there would be verifiable facts to buttress Hutchinson's claims in the testimony. Um, for instance, and, and things that are just if not indicative of criminal behavior, just show you that this is was not the traditional attorney-client relationship. For instance, she asks for an engagement letter, which is the basic letter you sign with any attorney that you hire to do anything. It's basically them saying what they will do and what you can expect and what they can expect from you. It's kind of a standard, 
right? An expected standard in the business. And he allegedly refuses to give her one. She then asks him, who is paying your bill? Because that was her primary concern at that time, finding an attorney that she could actually afford. And he doesn't tell her who's paying the bill. He then makes it clear to her that without her consent, he's communicating to others the results of, of her interviews with um with the committee. So there's all kinds of indicators that there's something else going on here. There is a relationship here that matters more than the one between the two of them. And my suspicion is, of course, that that relationship was between Passantino and Pete either Donald Trump or people in and you know around Donald Trump and who were protecting his interests above and beyond everybody else's. Yeah, and and interestingly, um Passantino's law firm has scrubbed his information from their website. Um you you know, I have to imagine he's being investigated for this in the very least, at the very least, and maybe that's that's why or they just were like, okay, we don't we don't want to know you no more. Uh and we also know Cassidy Hutchinson started cooperating with the Department of Justice way earlier in the year. Um, and so it's very it's also interesting, like you said, that she waived that attorney client privilege because that kind of removes the need for a, a filter team if they do try to confiscate or if she hands over any of, of the communications that kind of show or bolster her claims that she's testifying to. Uh, and we also confirmed another a bit of news to confirm that that phone call to her where she got that phone call where they said, hey, redacted says you, we, he knows you'll do the right thing and you're loyal to the team and blah, blah, blah. Right, right. We've confirmed it was Ben Williamson. I thought it was Ben Williamson. And we've confirmed that the redacted person was Mark Meadows, who, again, also mm-hmm. just up to his eyeballs in this. I can't imagine he's not cooperating with the Department of Justice right now, but who knows? Or at least slow rolling them with his very good lawyers. Very, very concerning behavior. That and, you know, all these conversations with her about job offers. Okay, we'll talk about the job offer uh, at the end of the testimony today. Like, like very, very clearly attaching the conversation about a potential job offer with let's see how you perform in the in the interview first. Um, just a lot of really very suspicious and uh, um, off-putting behaviors that most attorneys um, would never engage in. So... Very, very strange situation there. One question for you. There's a part in this transcript. I mean, and, you know, you and I spoke. Uh, we've been, you know, texting back and forth and, and, and talking to each other before putting together this episode. But just the whole story of her driving to New Jersey in a, you know, at a rainy, cold night and Googling Watergate to see how to be a whistleblower and buying Butterfield's books to figure out what he did and wanting to do the right thing. But something that interesting in in her transcripts is when she says, I lied. I lied, I lied, I lied, I yeah. lied, I lied. Yeah. And I know that you had some concerns about, and this goes back to, you know, Chuck Rosenberg's concerns about releasing these kinds of things to the public. I mean, that could come back to kind of bite them, right? Yeah. I mean, her, the... The transcript is really riveting on a number of levels. It's it's kind of heart wrenching when you put yourself in her position. She she describes it incredibly well, vividly, right? About young person having had this crazy experience working in the White House, now out of a job, no income, understanding that she's about to be served with a congressional subpoena, desperately looking for a lawyer, doesn't have money to hire one, trying to find one that would be independent and really only have her interests at heart, but kind of gets drawn back into, as she refers it to, Trump world, that Trump 
you know, associated community because she's really under the gun and, um, and is, is struggling to find someone that she can, uh, you rely on to help her through this testimony talks about these, these, these like really wrenching, uh, trips back to see members of her family and asking people for financial support and not getting it. And, um, it's, it's, it's really compelling, but as you said, in one place, she goes in for her first interview with the committee and following what she believes is the guidance she's been given by her attorney, Stefan Pasatino, says, I do not recall to questions in which she knows she has relevant details to provide. And so at the first break from that, uh, during that interview, she and her attorney go into a private room and she kind of freaks out and she's like saying to him, oh my God, oh my God, I lied. I'm going to get in trouble. I lied. I lied. I lied. And he then tries to calm her down and says, no, you didn't. You're fine. It's okay. They don't know what you know. So therefore it's okay to tell them that you didn't recall. And that's, you know, as we've been saying, like incredibly. He even says um, uh, something, something like. They don't know what you know, um, and and I know you think I know you think that they know, yeah. But you only think that because you because do you know. know it. You have to remember, you know, like they don't know what you know. It's really, really amazing. But then you know, now here she is. She's got on on the record made these statements that she admits were lies. So I can tell you, it's unlikely she'll ever testify under oath in a trial in which on um, on cross-examination, the defense attorney doesn't bring this up and say, by your own admission, you're a liar. You li- you've lied under oath before. Are you lying to us now? Now, there's all ways, all kinds of ways you can rehabilitate that testimony. Prosecutor would then stand up on redirect and point out that you voluntarily kind of admitted this to the committee, went out of your way to find a new lawyer and be helpful. And so there's all kinds of, you know, elements in her favor, but boy, it's tough when a jury hears that you called yourself a liar. Yeah, I would, if I were the prosecutor, I would smoke that out in the opening statement. Yeah, you have to. I would say you're going to hear the defense say that she's a, they could call her a liar because she felt like she lied. That was only because she was being pressured by her Trump paid mm-hmm. attorney to do so. And she was very concerned about, it. you know, I would I would preempt that. I would what do they call it, draw the sting like right in the opening. Yeah, it's the time honored strategy of taking the sting out of it. So it's likely on direct examination on her first, you know, first uh <laughs> first several hours of testimony of what will undoubtedly be days if there's ever a trial, you know, the prosecutors would bring that out. They'd bring it up. They'd go through the whole thing, give her a chance to explain it. Um, But these are the kind of, uh, you know, these are the kind of problems that witnesses are going to have having had all of this pre-existing testimony under oath before DOJ gets gets a chance to really dig in and figure out what's going on. Yeah. The Trump, the Trump lawyers are going to know now that the prosecutors are going to draw that sting and and, and have a, have a better way to respond to it and prepare their defense. It's something else really interesting. I wanted to ask you about, uh, and apparently, according to Cassie Hutchinson, an unnamed Republican congressperson eventually, you know, as you said, you were talking about her story, heart-wrenching, mm-hmm. talking about not being able to find a lawyer, having the Passantino problem, having concerns. And apparently she consulted with uh, Liz Cheney. She was back-channeling through uh, Farrah Griffin to get back to the council, to the to the committee to testify again. And uh, an unnamed Republican congressperson uh I guess introduced her to her now attorney, who is working pro bono, by the way. And it's somebody that you know. It's Jody Hunt. <laughs> it is Jody Hunt. 
So uh, this is like classic DC world of everybody knows everybody, I guess. Um, I was kind of surprised to see Jody in this role of being the essentially what I, I'm confident Cassidy Hutchinson would describe as the non-Trump world attorney that she was able to rely on to help her get away from the the her previous attorney who she thought was maybe improperly influencing her performance. Um, Jody Hunt was the essentially the number three in the Department of Justice under Jeff Sessions. So at the very beginning of the Trump administration, he was the head of the civil division of the Department of Justice. I know Jody from having sat with him through many, many um, meetings and intelligence briefings. We used to meet uh, with the attorney general uh, at least three times a week to do the morning um briefings and Jody was often there. I also know I, at that time, I didn't realize how kind of tightly plugged in Jody was to the White House and to the Trump administration. I learned that after Jim Comey was fired, um, I had a series of, of uh, well-reported and bizarre and uncomfortable meetings with uh, then-President Trump. Uh, and in each one of those, Jody Hunt was there in the Oval Office, sometimes standing right behind President Trump, which I remember even at the time thinking, wow, this guy's the head of the civil division of DOJ. Like, what is he doing over here? So the one like the meetings where Donald was like denigrating your wife and talking about the fundraising and 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 all that, the plane ride back and, you know, for, for Comey, why did you let that happen, et cetera? All that those meetings, Jody. Yeah, Hunt that's about it. I mean, there were three of them. They happened in pretty quick succession. He was definitely there. I'm going to say probably two out of three. I couldn't tell you exactly which ones, but um, yeah, he seemed to be like really very, very tightly connected to the Trump administration and certainly to the to the White House counsel's office at that time. The White House counsel was, of course, Don McGahn. Um, so it just surprised me in this context to see Jody kind of riding in at the last minute and, um, you know, uh, kind of rescuing Cassidy Hutchinson from her uh, Trump-provided attorneys. But, hey, uh, she seems to be, ha she seems to have the uh, representation she needs and uh, he's providing it. So I'm sure that's uh, a good thing for her. Yeah, I would love to hear the Jody Hunt story of when he got off the Trump train and started hanging out and canoodling with like Liz Cheney, and, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. that's that set of Republican, the other set of Republicans. That would be very interesting to You can't tell the players without a scorecard, <laughs> as my grandmother would have said, but, uh, you know, that's just DC for you, I guess. I'd be very interested to know that. I hope he does. I hope he writes a book uh, that that you know maybe a future witness can can order in the middle of the night on her way home to New Jersey. There you um, go. Thank you so much uh, to Chuck Rosenberg for for taking time out of his schedule to come and speak with us. Absolutely, um, just a just a wonderful guy, very knowledgeable, and and like I said, he's 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 the epitome of of word economy and succinct and and able to yeah. able to break down complex issues. Uh, he's he's one of my heroes in that respect. And um, and Andy, thank you. Thank you for uh, for doing this this whole podcast with me. And thanks for episode four. And I hope you have a really, really happy holiday and Merry Christmas. And, well, you know, and uh, uh, we will be doing another episode before the new year or I would wish you a new year as well. There you go. And thank you, Allison. It's been a pleasure as always. It's always interesting. And of course, to Chuck, my friend, thank you for uh for pitching in this week and um, and look forward to meeting with you same time next week. Yeah, we'll see you then, everybody. Until then, I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. We'll see you next time. 
M S W Media.